encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippians that he wrote from prison. Just as a reminder of, of a little bit of the context of uh, the letter to the Philippians, you may remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul went over into Macedonia and the first stop in his missionary journeys in Macedonia was the city of Philippi. The first convert there was a a seller of purple cloth, a, a woman by the name of Lydia, whose the scriptures tell us her, 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 the Lord opened her art, heart to understand. And so uh, you may remember the Philippian jailer after that and his family were, were converted. And uh, after Paul left that, that city uh, to go on to, I believe, Thessalonica after that, he was supported by this church. They had this this intimate relationship. In fact, in this letter, Paul says that he yearns for this church, the people in this church, with the affection of Christ Jesus. There was this this familial affection for them. Um, They had built a a great bond. And so he is, again, like I said, he's writing from prison. And uh, even though he's in prison in the very first chapter, you see him talking about how even though he is bound, the gospel's not bound because it is still going out even uh, with him being in prison. And uh, we come to the second chapter, and uh, that's where we will pick up today, where he is in the vein of talking about what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? And so picking up, and I'll read from verse 1 all the way to verse 11, and then we will specifically focus today on verses 5 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your word, and we so desire this morning to be blessed by you in the preaching of your word. 
and I don't have an ability to do that. Uh, we know that only you working through the preaching of weak vessels like me uh, are, is anything good able to, to take place or to happen. And today, Lord, I'm asking and depending upon you to anoint me with your spirit that the words that, that come out of my mouth, Lord, would be words that are pleasing in your sight and that you would use them to, to do exactly what, what you do. Build up your church with these words. Christ has promised to build his church, and I trust him to do that today. I ask, Lord, that you would be with those here today who are, who are blind, who are lost, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, that, Lord, through the powerful working of your gospel, you would cause blind people to see and dead people to rise for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Division, discord, disharmony. Undeniable marks of the society that we live in as we draw near to Christmas in the year 2022. Just about everywhere you turn, you're going to find competing agendas. You'll find competing agendas in the House of Representatives. You'll find competing agendas in the Senate, in the media, and even within the, in public and private schools. These opposing interests, these class, clashing agendas. What we are witnessing is the, is the ripping apart of the very fabric of the society that we live. Now that may be a shock to many, and it is a shock to many. But it should not be a shock to us, church. Why is that? Well, because it's exactly what you would expect from a society that has unmoored itself from the Word of God. It's exactly what you would expect from a culture that by and large does not look to the Bible as its authority. It's exactly what you would expect from a people who are not tethered to the same foundation but are driven wherever the winds of their corrupted minds take them. But listen, there is a danger of this same kind of division and discord and disharmony creeping into the church, even amongst born-again Christians. I'm not talking about good reasons to divide like heresy or uh, maybe one party abandoning the word of God. I'm talking about division and dissension that can be traced back to one toxic heart attitude. Pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. In fact, investigate any nasty church split and you will find that the culprit is pride. Look under the hood of any un ungodly infighting in a church and you will find pride. Pride is the mother that births the ugly children of dissension and division. Pride is a steamroller that's ready to squash anyone and anything in its path. Pride is a wrecking ball that will bust up a church, leaving it looking no different than the world. And listen to me, child of God, you do not want to miss this. You are not immune from it. See, pride is perhaps the stealthiest of sins. It's like a chameleon that disguises itself well in your heart 
But if it's, not, if it's not slayed, if it's not mortified, it will leave its toxic droppings behind. The droppings of gossip and unrighteous anger and impatience and selfish agendas and the list goes on and on. And the church will divide and suffer. See, the Apostle Paul knew quite well about the real danger of pride. He had to deal with the havoc that pride had wreaked in the church in Corinth. The famous love chapter that many of us are familiar with in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we hear read at weddings all the time. You know, love is patient, love is kind. You know, that was actually a rebuke against the pride in that church in Corinth. A pride that had manifested itself in different ways and caused much division and heartache, bringing disrepute upon the name of Christ. So when Paul picked up his pen to write to the church in Philippi roughly six years later, it's not surprising that pride was on his mind. He had heard rumblings of pride beginning to rear its ugly little head. You can see hints of that in chapter 4 of his letter to the Philippians. But here in chapter 2, what he does is he warns them. He's warning the church as a whole. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's pride. But then he gives them this, this corrective, a slice of humble pie, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Pride by nature is self-centered and self-focused. Humility, on the other hand, is other-centered and others-focused. Paul knew that pride was like a knife that severs the cords of unity in a church. But humility is a glue that binds the people of God together. And so today in our text, we're going to see the apostle bringing out all the stops to stir us to selfless, others-centered humility holding out the preeminent model of humility, the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. I've titled this message, Christmas Humble Pie. Because we need to be feasting. We need to be feasting on Christ's humility in the incarnation so that we too might be a people who are humble. The main point of the message I want you to take away today is this. Church, behold the humble mindset of your Savior in the incarnation. And let that drive you to humble-mindedness towards one another. What I want you to see in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, I want you to first observe the call to humble-mindedness. And second, I want you to observe the model of of humble-mindedness, of course, being Christ in his incarnation. So first, let's start with the call to humble-mindedness in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. See, the the Apostle Paul here is he's, he's speaking of an attitude, a mindset. He writes, have this mind. It's a particular mind. It's a particular attitude. Speaking of Christ's humble mind and Christ's selfless attitude in the incarnation, as we will soon see. Next, I want you to notice the the particular context here that this is to be operative. Have this mind among yourselves. 
The particular context in which this humble-mindedness is to be active is the local church. We know that Paul's not writing to an unorganized group of Christians in Philippi. And the reason that we know that is, is he's writing, and as he says in the very first verse in the, in the letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, that he's writing to the, the church that is underneath the leadership of overseers and deacons. That's elders and deacons. See, when Christ saved you, if Christ has saved you, he unloosed you from the world, and he bound you to himself and to his body, the church. And that invisible reality, that unloosing from the world and that binding to Christ and his church, his body, the church, it finds an, a visible expression in the local church. As Christians gather together to worship the Lord every week and to live in intimate community with one another under the head that we are all bound to, which is Christ. See, the local church is a beautiful picture of that unloosing and that binding. But listen to me. When there is pride wrought division in the local church, it's like taking a pitchfork to the Mona Lisa. It completely messes up the beautiful picture. And that's why Paul's call to humble-mindedness is not a suggestion. In fact, it's an imperative in the Greek. Have this mind among yourselves. That's a command, not a suggestion. Now, at this point, you may be rightly asking the question, well, <laughs> that's great, Corey, but how? How can I have this mind of Christ? I mean, that seems like a stretch for me to have that kind of humble-mindedness that he had. Well, Paul answers that question for us. He says, it's already yours. It's already yours. Look what he says in, in, in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already possess it. When you were born again, you were given a new heart. And with that new heart, by the grace of God, you were given this kind of humble-mindedness. Not to the degree of Christ, but you were given that characteristic of humble-mindedness, an ability that you did not have before came alive in you and was activated in you. Now, you may not be experiencing it to this, its fullness yet. The reality is, is none of us are. But it is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean? It means that no born-again Christian can excuse themselves from humble-mindedness. No born-again Christian can say, I missed the delivery of that package. Why? Because that package was delivered at the moment you were given that new heart at salvation. Don't be fooled, though. This is not something that's automatic. It's something, it's an attitude that we must put on. As we put off the old man in Adam and we put on the new man in Christ, every single Christian is growing into the character of Christ. And grow, that growth, part of that growth is this others-focused humble-mindedness. There's only one fitting attitude as we live with one another in the local church and only one fitting mindset in the way that we treat one another, and that is humble-mindedness. 
So we've seen this call to humble-mindedness in verse 5. Now what I want you to do is I want you to observe the model of humble-mindedness, Christ in his incarnation in verses 6 through 8. I'm going to start in verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was fully God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stopped. Stop. He was equal with God the Father. They equally share the divine nature. But Jesus didn't grasp a hold of his real divine privileges to stay in the state that he had always been in for an eternity. That is to say, he didn't, he didn't grasp a hold of not adding to his divine nature a human nature. But what did he do? He says he emptied, but he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, he emptied himself, not of his divine nature, not of his divine attributes. No, he emptied himself by becoming a human, by adding a human nature to his divine nature. That was the emptying. And being found in human form, he was fully human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in the, that manger on that quiet night in Bethlehem was no ordinary child. No, this one had existed forever in his divine nature and yet had just been born in his human nature. Totally God, yet totally man. Truly divine and yet truly human. Here in Philippians 2, Paul describes the humble-mindedness of Christ in that incarnation by using words like, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Child of God. Has the incarnation become a wooden doctrine to you? Has it become a wooden doctrine? When you think about the Son of God taking on a human nature, does it stoke the embers of your affections? Or is it about as moving to you as George Washington crossing the Delaware River? What Paul is doing primarily here in Philippians is not merely holding out the incarnation as a doctrine for us to probe with our intellect. There is a time for that. But primarily what he's doing here is he is seeking to stir the affections of our hearts, leading us to follow in his beautiful selfless footsteps of our Savior and to see the humble-mindedness that is ours in him. In the remaining time that we have together, I want you to behold the humble-mindedness of your Savior in the incarnation. I want you to gaze upon three qualities of humble-mindedness that we see in Christ's incarnation that are yours. And by God's grace, I want you to leave here today driven to serve one another with that same kind of selfless humility, all because you have feasted on Christmas humble pie, which is your Savior. The first quality of humble-mindedness in your Savior's incarnation that is yours it is a mind set on sinking low to serve others. See, theologians refer to Christ's 
uh, this as Christ's humiliation. That when we think of the word, when we think of that word humiliation, words like shame and loss of dignity and dishonor come to mind, don't they? Humiliation holds this negative connotation. Not many of us wants to be humiliated. Think about this. Do you remember the humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar? The king of mighty Babylon, the highest of highs, no greater king on the earth, no greater power in his day. One day he's walking on the roof of his royal palace and he basically says, look at all that I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty. You remember what happened? The Lord brought swift judgment upon him. Daniel 4.33 says this, He, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. From the most powerful king on the earth, living in the lap of luxury to a homeless, animal-like, raving madman. Now that's a long distance to travel on the road to humiliation, isn't it? But do you understand that that distance that Nebuchadnezzar traveled in humiliation is nothing in comparison to the distance that the eternal Son of God traveled in His humiliation for you, child of God? In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus speaks of the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. This glory that displayed his supreme greatness along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. A glory that was eternally recognized and celebrated amongst the Trinity. A glory that made the height of Nebuchadnezzar's glory as a king look like a garbage dump in comparison. And he left all of that, all of that, to travel the greatest distance that anyone has ever traveled on the road of humiliation. From glory to being born as a human being. From glory to a filthy germ-infested feeding trough. From glory to the miseries of life in this fallen world. From glory to being pinned on a splintery wooden cross in shame. From glory to being consumed with the wrath of God for the sins of His people. From glory to death and being under the power of death for a time. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, no one has ever traveled a greater distance in humiliation for you, child of God. From a king's robe to a servant's apron to serve you. To serve all of his people. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He put aside his real rights and privileges as God to become weak like us. Augustine so many years ago wrote this. He says man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread, speaking of the bread of life, might hunger. The fountain thirst 
the light, sleep, the way, be tired on its journey. You see, he was not half human. He didn't experience 50% of what we as humans experience. No, he experienced every category that we experienced, you and I experienced, except sin. Do you think that God can't relate to you? Do you think that he's so far removed that he could never understand what you're experiencing? Then you've not thought deeply about the incarnation. Are you grieving over the loss of someone that you love? The sorrow engulf you. God incarnate, Jesus, has felt the aching pain of grief as tears streamed down his face at the graveside of his precious friend Lazarus. Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what grief feels like. Are you fearful or anxious about something? He's felt the floodwaters of fear and anxiety engulf him as he stared in the face of the impending wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what it's like to be in unfathomable distress, so much so that blood dripped from the pores of his skin. He knows what fear and anxiety feels like. Are you experiencing tension in a relationship, friction? He's felt the intense sting of being stabbed in the back by one of his closest friends, Judas. And being hated without cause by the very people he came to give his life for. Are you in physical pain? Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you have a condition. Maybe it's terminal. He's felt the excruciating pain of having his flesh ripped off of his back and flogging. Blunt trauma to his hands as nails were driven through them on the cross. And the drowning feeling of suffocation as the cruelty of crucifixion was famous to impart. Are you struggling with temptations? He knows what it's like to be weak. Having not eaten for 40 days and being tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. And he endured the full course of temptation more than you and I have ever endured without giving in. You see, he knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired and weary. He's not a God who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but one who is fully acquainted with them, minus sin. And if you are trusting in him, he gives you unlimited access to his throne of grace that you might receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Oh, what a beautiful mindset our Savior has. A mindset on sinking low to serve His people. Child of God, look at it. Gaze upon it. And be reminded that this mindset is yours. A mindset on sinking low to serve others. The second quality of humble-mindedness in your Savior's incarnation that is yours a mindset on bearing with others who are difficult and different. His body was unimpressive, ordinary, nothing about it that even hinted that he was God. 
Isaiah 53, the prophet, the prophet describes his ordinariness. He says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and say, wow, there's God. And no beauty that we should desire him. No, his glory and his majesty and his white hot holiness was concealed behind that frail human frame. Let's grasp the weight of this. Think for a moment about what often happened in the Old Testament when God appeared to people. When the Holy One revealed himself to unholy people. It wasn't a pleasant experience, was it? The invisible God would manifest his presence through visible created things like thick clouds and billowing smoke and blazing fire, impressive things. Think about for a moment Mount Sinai and giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, how it caused the people of Israel to tremble with fear. They were so afraid that they said to Moses, they said, you speak to us. And we'll listen to you, but do not let God to speak, to speak to us, lest we die. Even God's holy voice was too uncomfortable for their unholy ears. Remember how God's holy presence at the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 caused Isaiah to feel just how filthy he really was in the presence of God because of his sin? He pronounced a curse upon himself. You remember this. Here's what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, I hear what you're saying, preacher, but that was the God of the Old Testament. Now we've got Jesus. You realize who Isaiah was catching a glimpse of there in Isaiah chapter 6? According to the gospel of John chapter 12, it was Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus. Isn't it astounding how your Savior bore with sinners? That when Jesus was born, he didn't come out surrounded by blazing fire and blinding light. He was quite ordinary. Isn't it astounding that when Joseph and Mary heard his cries, that they didn't have to cover their unholy ears? Isn't it astounding that when their unholy hands touched him, that they weren't consumed by his wrath like Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant where God's special presence dwelt? Isn't it astounding that the holy, pure Son of God would come down into a world where He would be surrounded by the stench of sin and sinners and not consume them with His wrath. Oh, the restraining patience of Christ. If that's not astounding to you, could it be because you really don't know the God of the Bible? See, one of the greatest deceptions in our generation is just how repulsive sin is to our holy God, the one true living God. The reason that sin is not all that repulsive to us is because sin is in us and it's around us. We've always lived with it and around it. But think about it this way. Put Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy 
all serial killers, in the same room. And they're probably not all that repulsed by each other. Why? Because they're all alike. They all have similar natures. But introduce the mothers of their victims that they killed into that room, and all of a sudden the dynamic completely changes, doesn't it? The nature of those killers is repulsive to those mothers who have been injured by their crimes. Do you realize that our nature as sinners is infinitely more repulsive than that to a holy God? And if we don't grasp this one truth, we're going to miss the gravity of the incarnation. You want to know how repulsive sin is to God? I want to point you to two places. Pick up your Bible and read about hell. A place of eternal torment reserved for sinners with no joy, no happiness, no relief, where the never-ending occupation of its inhabitants is weeping and gnashing of teeth in agony. That's how repulsive sin is to God. The second place I'll point you to is the cross. The night before his crucifixion, we see a side of Jesus that we've never seen before in the Gospels. Keenly aware of the wrath of God that was about to consume his soul, He said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of God's wrath stored up for the sins of his people. The next day, Jesus was pinned to that cross, naked, bearing the sins of his people. About noon, darkness came across the land, and the Niagara Falls of God's wrath came crushing down on his son in judgment. That's how repulsive sin is to God. This is what makes the incarnation so shocking. Oh, the forbearance of Christ, the restraining patience of Christ, the bearing of Christ with people that were nothing like him. That from the moment of his incarnation until the moment of his ascension into heaven, that Jesus would be surrounded by a people whose sinful nature was naturally repulsive to his holy nature. Hell repulsive, cross repulsive, yet he restrained his wrath. He was meek and gracious and forbearing towards sinners towards people who were nothing like him. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Think about every single person, in fact, that Jesus touched during his time on this earth. Oh, how we shy away so quickly, don't we, from those who are difficult to love in the church. (laughs) Difficult to be around. Oh, how we're so prone to be short-tempered when a brother or a sister sins against us. But look, child of God, look at your Savior, how he drew near to people just like you, who were, who were like sandpaper to his holy nature. And look how his mind was set on bearing with them for both their good and yours. Look upon it, gaze upon it, and be reminded that this mindset is yours in.
Christ Jesus. The last quality I want to point you to of humble-mindedness in your Savior's incarnation that is yours. A mind set on costly obedience to God in order to benefit others. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, fully human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His mind was set on obedience to the Father. See, the covenant of redemption had been ratified between the Father and the Son before the world was ever created. That the Son would take on a human nature and be the mediator between God and man to rescue His people. And at the heart of that mediation was His role as high priest. Think about for a moment the day back to the drama of the Day of Atonement that we read about in the Old Testament. It was that one day a year that any human being could step foot into the Holy of Holies where the very special presence of God resided between the cherubim above the mercy seat. That's a goosebump-inducing experience for a sinful high priest to approach a holy God. The high priest would first undergo an elaborate set of rituals, washing and cleansing and putting on special garments in preparation to enter into God's presence. As the high priest stepped behind the curtain, he brought with him the blood of two animal sacrifices, the first to atone for his own sins and the second to atone for all the people of Israel. He took the blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And God knowing what he would do in Christ, accepted the death of the animals as a substitute for the deserved death of the people of Israel because of their sins. A substitute sacrifice. Well, that's a great Old Testament lesson, preacher, but what does that have to do with the incarnation? Answer, everything. Everything. You see, the Day of Atonement that had occurred every year was a shadow, was a preparation for us to understand the real day of atonement that would come. When Christ, the eternal Son of God, would take on a human nature, the God-man would go and He would suffer and die on the cross to atone for the sins of His people. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He, speaking of Jesus and as the eternal Son of God, he had to be made like his brothers, meaning human, in every respect. Not just in some respects, in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation is a payment to satisfy God's wrath for sin. He had to be human. He had to be human to be a merciful and faithful high priest. One who had lived in perfect obedience to God's law. One who had no sin. One who was pure, not by washing and going through an elaborate set of rituals, but by his very nature, and thereby therefore qualified to bring a sacrifice into the real holy of holies in heaven, in which the earthly holy of holies was merely a copy. He had to be human to make that payment to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of His people. 
God tells us that the wages of sin is death. Speaking of both physical death and the second death, which is hell, where the wrath of God is poured out on sinners as a payment for their sins. He had to be human to pay the wages of sin, physical death. Why? Because God can't die. But yet at the same time, he had to be God. Why did he have to be God? So that he could endure the magnanimous measure of God's wrath that was poured out on him on the cross. That would have been poured out on his people forever in hell. The divine nature sustaining his human nature to endure the full weight of wrath for sin. See, this is the purpose of the incarnation. To pour out His life to rescue His people. There, strung naked on that dreadful cross, was none other than the God-man. It was the day of atonement that all the other days of atonement had pointed to. The high priest was there making a sacrifice. He was offering the sacrifice of Himself for the sins of His people. We're told in the Scriptures that darkness crept over the land from about noon to three o'clock. Signifying something eerie was taking place. Jesus had become a curse for his people. The curse for sin. The terrifying wrath of God was consuming the God-man, Emmanuel, for sin. And after he had paid and made that sacrifice and paid it in full, he cried out, It is finished. The debt had been paid. The wrath had been satisfied. The sacrifice had been made by the high priest. And he breathed his last. Then we're told something quite telling in Matthew. We're told that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The same curtain that the high priest would step behind once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the atoning sacrifice was ripped from top to bottom. Why? Because everything that the annual Day of Atonement had been pointing to, had pictured, had now been fulfilled. The high priest had come, and he had offered the sacrifice of himself that would actually satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And then on the third day, Christ rose from the dead, just as the Scriptures had foretold for thousands of years, an undeniable sign from God that the sacrifice had been accepted and that this gospel is true. See, this was the purpose for the incarnation, the purpose for God the Son taking on a human nature to offer the sacrifice which would be the propitiation for the sins of His people that would lift their death sentence and bring them back to God. Oh, what unfathomable suffering your Savior endured for you, child of God. That His mind was set on costly obedience to bless you and all of His people. Look at it. Gaze upon it. And be reminded that this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus. A mindset on costly obedience to benefit your brothers and your sisters in the local church. Well, maybe you're here today and you are not trusting Christ to rescue you from your sins. Maybe you don't think you need a rescuer. Maybe you're someone who is comfortable in your sin and you don't see that as that big of a deal and you just really, you just don't want to let it go. Whatever the case, 
is today for you. I, I want to love you enough to tell you that your pride is keeping you from true riches. Your pride is keeping you from true riches. You're like a homeless man invited to live in a king's palace with the choicest of clothes and the choicest of food and the choicest of accommodations to satisfy your every need. And yet you won't come. You'd rather stay in the dark alley, nibbling on the rotten scraps of your sin that will one day lead to your demise. Friend, don't be foolish. Because the king's invitation is going out to you once again today. And you are not promised another day. I just heard last night that a classmate of mine passed away and I'm 44 years old. You're not promised another day. It could happen to any one of us. The king's invitation to you today is this. For God so loved the world. This is how he loved the world, both Jew and Gentile, which would include you. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Trust in the Lord today. You need a high priest. And a high priest has come to offer the sacrifice that can actually take away everything that your sins deserve. As we close this morning, what a humble Savior we have. And what a lofty calling we have. To live together with the mindset of Christ, a mind that is ours. And church, I would be remiss today if I did not tell you that I have seen this mindset operative in you. I've seen many of you put on this, that servant's apron to cook, to clean, to mow, to build, and to teach, and to counsel. Why? Not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I've seen you bear with one another. I've seen the restraining patience of Christ as some of you have been sinned against. And instead of lashing out and being short-tempered, you've restrained, and you've been patient, and you've loved. I've seen obedience to God that was costly, generous giving of your possessions, generous giving of your, your money, generous giving of your time. Some of you I've seen giving up sleep to go to repair broken water lines in the middle of the night at a brother or sister's house. Giving up your time to set up and to serve at various outreaches that we do, as well as what we do at corporate worship on the Lord's Day. And I want to say, as one of the pastors of this flock, I am so encouraged by your humble mind in this church. But today, I leave you with a charge that left Paul left to the church in Thessalonica. You're doing it, but let me encourage you to do so more and more. Church, behold the humble mindset of your Savior in the incarnation, and let that drive you to humble-mindedness towards one another. Eat some Christmas humble pie. Let's pray. Lord, 
We are so blessed that you are a God who has not only told us what to do, you have shown us. <laughs> you, have, you have come, Christ, and been our model. And you've told us, Lord, that those of us who have been, who have been by your grace saved, we've been born again, that we have this mind in Christ, in union with him. It's already ours. And yet, Lord, we know and can recognize our weakness, how we fall so far short. And so today, Lord, we're praying, knowing that we must be connected to the vine in order to bear fruit. That, Lord, we would look to you and ask of you that you would make us a people who are humble-minded like Christ. A people who are ready to put on that servant's apron and go low to serve one another a people who are even more willing to be to have a mindset that we are willing to bear with those who are difficult. And Lord, to have a mindset that we are willing to obey your word no matter what the cost is in order to bless those around us. Lord, thank you for your local church. Thank you today that you've reminded, reminded us of, of the glue, Lord, that we can use, humble-mindedness, that you've given to us, Lord, to hold us together, that, that glue that the Spirit himself, he's the one who brought us into this unity, and yet we, can, we are called to maintain that unity. And today we're reminded that it is through humble-mindedness. Forgive us, Lord, for our, uh, all the ways that we have fallen short of that even today. And I ask, Lord, that you would make us even sweeter as a result of looking at Christ in his incarnation today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.